There is so much BS when it comes to law and community benefit organizations. 501c3 not-for-profit organizations have very specific guidelines and laws that they have to follow, which vary from state to state and other laws that are designated by the IRS and the federal government. However, the difference between what we think is law and what is actually the law can be as big as the Grand Canyon. And we're going to discuss those chasms today, busting myths on nonprofit law with May Harris of the For-Profit Law Center. Welcome to 501c3BS, deprogramming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! May L. Harris is Four Purpose Law Group's founder and managing attorney, with over 16 years' experience specializing in law for our sector. She is a graduate of the San Diego School of Law in 2000 and earned her master's degree in nonprofit leadership and management in 2010. She also serves many community organizations as a volunteer and board member and is currently president of USA Rugby Trust. She is a member of the San Diego County Bar Association, the Social Enterprise Alliance, and the American Bar Association Taxation Section and the Tax-Exempt Organization Standing Committee. You can find more about For Purpose Law Group at forpurposelaw.com. May Harris, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here, and thanks for doing this. I know um, we're talking about a wide variety of law, and there's not a lot of attorneys that handle all the different sections we're going to talk about, but you specialize in 501c3 organizations, so you're going to be able to handle all this, and I really appreciate you doing it. My pleasure. Now, do you prefer to be called May, Miss Harris, something different? Oh, May is great. Okay, great. Thank you. So, you know, we had a little a phone call when we first uh, set this up and um, you know we talked a little bit about the, the term nonprofit being uh, something that you get calls about a lot and I know it's a real loaded term and we on this podcast have made a concerted effort to try to get people to start using the word community benefit organization or social profit organization because it's not exactly the most flattering term for what we do but it is the technical IRS tax determination for us um, can you talk a little bit about the kind of calls you get of people asking legal questions related to the word nonprofit? Uh, well, like you've alluded to, it's difficult to define yourself by something you aren't. It leads to a lot of confusion. Um, so we get calls from clients who think they have to zero out at the end of the year and run at um, zero balance, have no profit because they're a nonprofit. So that means they can't carry it over, and that nothing can be further from the truth. Um, <laughs> as you know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm laughing because we in our very first podcast we kind of tackled the term nonprofit as one of the the BS myths of our industry is this idea that you can't make a profit or um, you know what that that term means. And it's good. It's just good to hear from you as a practicing attorney in this field to hear that you get calls of people wondering if they have to zero out their balance and get rid of their profits. <laughs> so, because that's something we discussed on our first episode. Well, interestingly enough, it was one of my first blog posts. Um, it doesn't. We get we get it all the time. Um, it's just a common misconception, I think. Oh, nice. Um, okay, so what I what I want to do today is cover a lot of the myths and misconceptions that I hear and questions, legal questions that I've gotten as a consultant. 
and um, some things just seem to pop up over and over and over again. And um, what we're going to talk about today, I should warn our listeners, is based on California law, uh, because we are in California. Uh, May is in San Diego, and I'm working all over Southern California. And so this is based on California law. It may differ in your state. So just take that you know, as it is uh, that this podcast is based in California. Now, some things we talk about may be federal law or IRS law, but um, one of the things that has come up constantly, May, is this idea of raffles. And we have heard from many people uh, that will go to a training of some sort and come back and say, oh, I just found out that, that if we use the word raffle, it's illegal. But if we use the word opportunity drawing, we can go ahead and do it exactly the same way. <laughs> so I would love for you to straighten out because, you know, the word raffle is used in the attorney general's um, guide to charities. And uh, so I'm, uh, there's a lot of mixed information on the web about what is legal and what is not legal when it comes to raffles slash opportunity drawings. And maybe you could straighten us out on that. Sure. Um, from a legal perspective, it doesn't matter what you call it. If it is a game of chance as a raffle or an opportunity drawing is considered, it's, it falls under the statute. So doesn't matter what you call it, it still is a raffle as far as the state of California is concerned. Um, and it's not that you can't do it, you just have to do it correctly. And so, so if a charitable organization such as a service club, let's take Rotary for example, because that's when I run into it a lot uh, in my Rotary clubs. Let's say that you're part of a Rotary and they want to do uh, an opportunity drawing at the beginning of their meetings or they want to do a, a raffle as part of an event, what is the proper way to do it? Well, and let me define between, um, you know, some types of opportunity drawings. If you just like drop your business card in a fishbowl at the beginning of the meeting and then they draw something, that doesn't um, equate to a raffle. You're not paying for a chance to, at a, for a chance to win something. You're just dropping in a, a business card. So that does, if you want to do something like that, great. If you actually sell tickets um, to for a chance to win something, that's a raffle. Um, the way you have to do it if, as a nonprofit is, first of all, you have to be over a year old. Um, you can't register to run a raffle until you're, you've been in existence for over a year in California. Um, then you, once a year, you file and say, we're going to do a raffle and you get a permit to run one or many raffles. You can run as many as you want as long as you do them correctly over the course of the year. And then at the end of that, you have to file a report um, with, the with the California Attorney General. Um, and it basically just, they want to know how much you spent on it um, because there's a funky rule in California that says that you cannot spend more than 10% of the raffle proceeds or whatever is generated through the sale of those raffle tickets on the administration of that raffle. It's known as the 90-10 rule, um, which it leads to another, you know, mis often misapplied um, opportunity drawing slash raffle, which is the 50-50 raffle, which for most organizations and nonprofits in California are illegal. Ah, thank you for clarifying that. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, an organization who wants to have a raffle or even a series of raffles or raffles all year long, they just have to... Uh, they just have to apply for a special permit uh, from, who would they apply to? Would it be the Attorney General's office? Yes, it's the California Attorney General. And then that permit gives them the right to do it, but they have to file paperwork or a report. Um, and basically the report is about how much administrative costs there are for that. So in the, in the uh, 
example of rotary that we were using they don't re everything is done by volunteers there's no administration so they would just be filing a report saying they didn't spend any money on the administration of the raffle that was all done by volunteers correct correct unless they went out and they bought the the prize i mean because that goes into the administration of a, of a raffle as well Oh, i see so the the cost of the prize would also be considered part of the 10 percent correct that's why 50-50 raffles are illegal. All right. And 50-50 raffles are mostly what you see. Uh, and and they're done everywhere, whether they're legal or not. I mean, uh, there's not really raffle police running around, but it is not ethical in terms of what the law is with the state of California, at least. Well, interestingly, you're right. There's not raffle police coming um, around. It's typically, if, it, if it's an issue at all, it's a combination of poor management bringing attention of the attorney general to your organization anyway. But once, if they find it, the, the kind of kicker is it's, a, it's not a violation of, you know, the California Corporations Code. It's a violation of the penal code. So, you know, while there's not police going around, you know, to little leagues and um, parent-teach organizations, you know, saying you can't do it, if, if it's an add-on to um, another reason why you're under audit or investigation, it can be a really nasty one. So in the case of, you know, I think I've seen in the news some organizations that have had embezzlement charges or they've had some really funky legal issues uh, because of bad management. If they find that this is part of the bad management, they could actually send you to jail for this because it's uh, illegal under the penal code. Or is it a misdemeanor or a felony? Um, it's a misdemeanor. Um, but it's, it's just an, a little nasty can of worms that if you can avoid it, I would avoid it. Interestingly enough, the one... Um, organization or the one type of organization that can legally do 50-50 raffles and it's a relatively recent development are professional sports teams. So you'll see those guys out there doing it um, which I think is completely the wrong message to be sending. Yeah, we, we can do this for professional sports teams but we, we can't do it for the local little league. It makes no sense. Wow, that is so wrong <laughs> on so many levels. <laughs> yeah, for anyone out there who wants to do advocacy, I, I think that's a huge Thing to petition your representatives about. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because we're going to do another podcast on what we are allowed to do as organizations to advocate for ourselves because there's a lot of misconceptions that we as nonprofit organizations or 501c3s are not allowed to do advocacy. And I think there's, uh, there's stipulations to that, but we are certainly allowed to. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to do another whole podcast on that with an expert on, on advocacy in our sector. But getting back to uh, what we're talking about today. I mean, that was really great to clear up because we have uh, so many, uh, I've, I've heard it so many times in so many organizations about what we can do and what we can't do. And there's so many misconceptions around that in terms of raffles. So that's good to know that. Uh, let's go on to the next piece of, of uh, BS <laughs> that we find a lot in, in legal terms in our sector. Uh, we have friends of groups that are groups that um, if, if there's a government, say, art center or museum or park or sports team um, through through a, a parks association or whatever that are run by friends of groups or 501c3 organizations whose job it is to raise money for that entity. And, um, you know, I've always heard that that's kind of a sticky wicket because you, you know, it's a tax funded entity and you have a nonprofit organization, 501c3 organization raising money for it outside of what the government provides. And um, there are governments that will appoint people to the boards of those friends of groups. And 
I've heard two different um, two different ways of thinking about this. I've heard people saying it's completely illegal for the government to appoint a uh, to appoint people to a nonprofit board because they're supposed to be uh, completely separate from the government and that provides a conflict of interest. And I've heard other people say it's not illegal, but maybe not completely ethical. What is the legalities of that? Uh, it's completely legal, um, and, and you can do it in two different ways, and I've seen it done in two different ways. Um, typically, with, when it's a government entity, they will serve as a designator. Um, so under the California Corporations Code, um, they can a designator means that they have um, they have the power by vir- to designate um, the board of directors of that nonprofit corporation. So it, it's completely legal. It's within the California Corporations Code. Another way I've seen it done, and this is typically for supporting organizations like you're talking about, like type one through type three supporting organizations that exist to raise funds for another organization, um, it's typically through a membership structure. So the supporting organization will have one member, and that one member has the power to designate or select the board of directors, and the member would be the supported organization, for example. Um, so it's, there's nothing illegal about it. As far as the, the conflict of interest, I mean, it's like any other conflict of interest. If it's disclosed and it's not, you know, damaging to the nonprofit, you know, then deal with it in an, you know, in a transparency disclosure, um, recusal of, you know, interested parties if necessary manner. But there's nothing per se illegal about that kind of a structure. Well, now, if you have a situation where, like, let's say a city owns a museum and there's a friends of group and they're all their board is all appointed by the city council. So they're kind of beholden to the city because they were appointed by the city and the city wants to do something with the museum that maybe is controversial in the community. Maybe they want to build a wing at taxpayer expense or they want to um, demolish something uh, and the board votes to go along with the city. Isn't there a conflict of interest there because they were appointed by the city? There shouldn't be. And you, in your scenario, you said the museum was owned by the city or it was owned yes. by the nonprofit? No, owned by the city and the, and the nonprofit uh, 501c3 organization is, is raising money for it. Or so if the museum is owned by the city and they want to use taxpayer money to improve or add on to that. I don't see any problem with that. Um, you did use one word that, you know, I think is really important, and that's beholden to. Um, if you are on the board of a nonprofit, whether you're appointed or designated by a governmental entity or anything else, your duties are to that nonprofit, not to the people who appointed you, not to the entity that appointed you. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important if, if you're serving in a role like this that you realize that that's who you're you're beholden to is that entity, not the people that um, or the entity that appointed you. You still have the fiduciary duties of you know duty of loyalty, duty of care, obedience, etc. to that nonprofit. So that's a really good point. So people who are appointed by government body to a a friends of group or any kind of five hundred one c three organization that raises money for a government entity, they're not beholding to the people who appointed them. They're they're beholding to the mission of that five hundred one c three. That's what you're, you're correct. Absolutely. And so you know what happens is if you get at odds with the people who appoint you, they go through the whole rigmarole of removing you. And that can cause more of a PR, you know, mess than they would want. So, you know, your duties of loyalty are to the nonprofit, not to the people who appointed you. That's good. Um, all right, let's get to another uh, piece of of uh, 
organizational BS that has come up to me recently in, in a session that I was teaching. Um, somebody w in, in my class, we were talking about term limits of board members, and I was saying it's a good idea to have term limits. And somebody in my class said, well, actually, legally, we're required to have term limits. And they said that uh, um, they actually sent me a link to a legislative code. I think it's Title I, Part Two, Division Two, Chapter Two, Article Two, Number 5220 of the state legislature code that says, and, and I'm quoting now, directors shall be elected for the terms no longer than four years as are fixed in the articles or bylaws. However, the term of directors of a corporation may, uh, without members, may be up to six years. And I don't know what all that means, but they had a, a, a lawyer that had interpreted that as they're required by law to have term limits and they have to be in these fixed terms. Now, I've talked to other lawyers who said that's not true. So uh, what is the truth on this? <laughs> well, I think it might be just a, a confusion on term length and term limits. So is that subsection, um, interestingly enough, is the same subsection where it talks about designators, by the way, um, just a little farther down in 5220. Um, and it's saying the length of the term can be no longer than six years. So um, one person in one term, six years max, but you can have 20 of those terms. So when I think of term limits, it's, and I've written these into bylaws, is, you know, they can serve, you know, they might be four-year terms, they can serve no more than two consecutive terms, and then they have to take a break. That's a term limit. Right. Um, so nothing in the code that I know of that says, you know, you can only serve on the nonprofit board in that role for a certain amount of time. That would be a term limit. But this particular code is really length of terms. They don't want to say that you're in this term, you're serving as president of this nonprofit organization and your term is 20 years. That makes, it's not in the best of the public for that. So hence they put a maximum term length of six years. So does that mean then that I always advise organizations that it's good to have term limits, that term limits should, should be, you know, no more than eight or nine years without having to take a, a, a break and even six years is good. So some people may do two, three-year terms or four, two-year terms or, you know, something that equates to somewhere between six and nine years and then you take a break. But there are people with no term limits that are on for 20 years. But you're saying that this law doesn't doesn't stipulate that any of that is legal or illegal. Correct. It's really what comes down to best practice in the particular area of the sector. So one other thing that the same um, statute talks about is staggered terms, which I'm a huge fan of. So, and I yes. like my personal favorite, and it, it seems to work, you know, well with most nonprofits we work with, is a four-year term that's staggered. Um, so you never have a full turnover of the board at any one time. You still have some. Uh, you know, historical knowledge there to kind of train. Well, just just to clarify, just to clarify for our listeners, what you're talking about about staggered terms is that if you have a, a four-year term, then somebody may start on uh, somebody starting on year one. Somebody else's term may, will end, so that a different person will come in on year two, and another person will come in on year three, so that all all the board members' terms don't end at the same time. So you have new people coming in while you have veterans on the on the uh, board. Exactly. Thank you for clarifying that. That's exactly what I mean. Great. Yes, that staggering is important. And, and it's, you know, I think I always tell people that organizations should take the Phil Jackson approach, you know, uh, that he did when he was coaching, which is to make sure there was always a balance between veterans and rookies on the team. <laughs> Perfect. Exactly. Okay. Um, 
next next piece of uh, BS that we have to deal with is a lot of small nonprofits have exempt employees. And for, well, let me just clarify for our listeners: when you're talking about hiring employees, you have part-time employees, you have full-time employees, and you have exempt employees, which are employees that are full-time and they are are working um, in kind of senior management positions to the point where you're not paying them overtime. And to be an exempt employee, uh, they have to be uh, paid at least twice the minimum wage by California law. Now, I don't know if it's different in other states, but here in California, that's the law. So if the minimum wage goes up to $15 an hour, that means your exempt employees are now going to cost you $30 an hour, whereas maybe before they were costing you $24 an hour. So it's quite a, quite a jump in your salaries. There's a caveat, I've been told, that small uh, 501c3 organizations and actually small businesses too that are under 25 employees do not have to deal with all of these kinds of wage issues, um, do not have to deal with the minimum wage or or the, the wage for exempt employees. Is that correct or is that not true? Oh, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Even small nonprofits have to pay the same minimum wage as everyone else. They don't, they don't, there isn't a carve out in, in the statute for small nonprofits. So where, where does this myth come from? Uh, do, you, do you have any idea? I actually don't. I haven't heard that um, until you said that. Uh, maybe it's you know a takeoff of you know the ACA where there are some carve outs for small employees and you know small nonprofits, but I there's nothing that I'm aware of that says a small nonprofit can pay less than minimum wage, except in certain circumstances where they get a waiver to do so, um, and that's one thing that, again advocacy is needed, but. Um, there's a waiver you can get uh, for uh, intellectually disabled employees um, that you can get to, to pay them less than minimum wage. But I have, there's, n- there's no carve out that I know besides that one. And hopefully that one's going the way of the dodo um, to pay less than minimum wage as a nonprofit employer. Yeah, I've had two, two organizations that are clients of mine that are both very small organizations and they have less than 25 employees and they heard at some kind of state convening of their types of organizations in separate occasions not in the same convening that that there was this exemption for people who have less than 25 employees in California and that's both for-profit and non-profit so I, I don't know where they I don't know where that information comes from but I just took it as okay that maybe the same place as the opportunity <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, so I, I just like, oh, well, then you must, you know, you heard that in a state convening. Well, it must be true. So it's good to know that that's not true. Um, yeah, yeah. That is one of the major issues that our sector has to deal with is, and I, I guess it's true of small businesses too. Of course, we want to pay people a higher minimum wage and we want, you know, low-income employees to do well. But it also is is hard on us when we have to look at all our exempt employees and the pay bumps that they have to get. And then, you, of course, your other employees, you have to bump up so that somebody with seniority is not getting less pay than somebody who just started because of this, you know, um, this pay bump going on with minimum wage and with exempt employees. So it, it can it can take your whole payroll up 20 to 30 uh, percent when they do these changes in the minimum wage. So it's, you know, it's definitely... Absolutely. And I think the, one of the bigger issues, um, I think, is are you properly classifying your workers as exempt or non-exempt? I think it's so tempting to just say, yeah, they're exempt. They, I don't want to pay them. And the usual reason is that they don't want to pay overtime. Right. And I get that. But if their job duties aren't executive 
managerial kind of professional in nature, it's a misclassification. And that's where a lot of nonprofits get in trouble is misclassifying their employees uh, in one way or another. Um, this is one, exempt versus non-exempt. And the other biggie is as an employee versus an independent contractor. Um, that's a huge one. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, that, nonprofits, I think, are guilty of more than businesses are. And that's actually true for insurance purposes as well because you could be paying for an insurance and if you have someone mis miscategorized um, and there's an insurance claim, they may not pay the insurance claim because you didn't categorize them correctly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a much bigger problem than I think most um, nonprofit um, organizations realize. And when you think about it, your biggest um, liability or risk is your labor force. They can get hurt on the job. They can get really mad at you and decide to sue you. Um, there's all sorts of risks when you hire. Um, and just because you're a small nonprofit doing really good things doesn't mean you, you don't have to follow the same rules as everyone else um, when it comes to hiring and classifying your employees. So just to be clear on how we debunk that myth, then, everyone, regardless of the size of their organization, if they're a 501c3 organization and they have employees, they have to pay their employees the minimum wage and they have to pay their exempt employees twice the minimum wage, at least in California. And they have to also make sure that they're classifying them correctly, that if they're, um, if they're employees, they're not uh, classifying them as contractors, for example, or, uh, or, or classifying them in something that will get them an insurance break. And then they find out later on that they paid that insurance for nothing because it's no good because he miscategorized them. <laughs> so they have to be very careful to make sure that they're doing everything correctly. And the other thing that you said is that uh, if they're an exempt employee, they have to be an upper management employee doing managerial work. They can't just put anyone who's a full-time employee in as exempt and then work them, you know, without overtime. Is that all correct? That's all correct. Great. All right. Um, okay. This is the last one I have, and then I want to find out what yours are, because I bet you get calls on things that I haven't even thought of yet. But uh, the last one that I have is, is it legal or ethical for an outside fundraising consultant to work on a percentage? And I'll tell you why this has come up, because the Association for Fundraising Professionals, which I have been a member of in the past and have uh, received their CFRE from, which is their Certification for Fundraising Professionals, they say it is not ethical to accept compensation, or and, and this is their language, to accept compensation or enter into a contract that is based on a percentage of contributions. They say that is not ethical, and and nor shall members accept finder's fees or contingency fees. Yet, the California Attorney General's Guide to Charities seems to implicate that this is an okay practice because they talk about ratios, paying professional commercial fundraisers in ratios. So my question to you is, is it just something that AFP says is unethical or is it something that's actually illegal? It's not illegal. I think it is more of an unethical um, practice. And, you know, when you think about it, it depending on the percentage, I and mean, this is the concern of the AG, um, is ratios. It's like how much of the money that's being raised, you know, ostensibly by the nonprofit is going into the pocket of a commercial fundraiser or a grant writer or anything like that. So to be completely on the up and up and ensure that the most actual um, corpus of whatever grant or whatever funding you're getting is actually going to reach the nonprofit, it's best to just not do a percentage for the person who's doing the grant writing or the person who's going out there and doing it. That doesn't mean that you can't have incentive bonuses. Um, for, you know, exemplary work. It doesn't mean that you're chained as a grant writer, you know, to making <laughs> hopefully the exempt um, 
at least the exempt uh, you know maximum in California. But when you enter into a contract, especially I think the contingency ones are the really the kickers. Like, um, you know, I'm not going to charge anything unless you get it, and I'm taking forty percent. That's there's it just smacks of unethical. Um, but it's not illegal. Yeah, I think I think a lot of times when you run into it, um, uh, in in the more kind of gray area is when you have a very small organization that wants to hire a professional grant writer and they can't afford them and the grant writer maybe cares about the organization and says well look I'll write the grant and if you get it you just give me the 10% for administrative costs that we write into the grant you know that to me doesn't bother me so much as an ethical violation because they're really trying to help them out to have a professional grant writer when they can't afford it and they're not asking for too much in return but when you get into like you said professional organizations that are you know doing a a fundraiser and then you hear oh the annual gala made $150,000 and then you find out later 70% of that went to a professional fundraiser then that's a problem yeah yeah absolutely um one thing that I've seen, and I don't know if this is in the same realm of it, but I've seen grant writers that will write the grant for you, and they're typically really big ones, big governmental grants, and they won't charge for the grant writing, but what they do is they contract to do the um, the after-grant uh, program reports. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's... And I don't know how that really works. With It's not illegal, um, but with the ethics of it. But that's where the money is for these companies is in the after grant, you know, measuring and reporting. And it's something that has to be done and the nonprofit might not know how to do that either. Right. Right. That's where their money is. Or, so, or maybe even doing like the, the outside evaluation, like, you know, the, the grant has to be evaluated and they're going to do it as an outside evaluator or something. Cause that could be quite a bit of money. That's it. That's exactly what they've done. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. That, you know, that's a, an interesting way of looking at doing grant writing services and that, I don't think that would actually violate AFP's code of ethics because you're not doing it as a percentage. You're actually just hoping if they get the grant, then you're going to get hired to do part of part of the work. So, yeah, I don't see that as an ethical violation. Well, good. I'm glad we were able to cover all of these things today. Now I, ha- I get to ask you, what are the, the myths and BS that people call you up because they've heard this or that, the other thing? And it's just either, you know, either give us your juiciest, most ludicrous ones or give us the ones you hear the most, whatever you want to do. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to give you the ones I hear the most um, or have to work around the most. And that is, well, I'm forming a corporation, right? So it must be better that I form it in Delaware. Um, I get that (laughs) all the time. Um, For nonprofits all the time, they're formed in Delaware. And then you also have to... uh, file here in California, because this is actually where you are, right. as a foreign entity. So now you have two states you have to keep, you know, happy with filing. Well, and the, and well, just the f- I was going to say, the funny thing about that is is you, you file in Delaware for the tax benefit if you're a corporation, and we're nonprofits, so we don't have a tax benefit, so it's really stupid to do. Well, I mean, even for businesses, you think there's a tax benefit. There's not a tax benefit. Right. Um, the benefit is if you're going to go public, then, you know, it has better corporations code for, you know, founders and shareholders. Um, but the thing is, Delaware doesn't have a nonprofit corporations code. They haven't adopted the Model Act. So the way that Delaware has um, kind of accommodated that is they say, oh, well, we're, if you're a nonprofit and you're incorporated in Delaware, well, your members are really shareholders. So we're just going to treat it that way. Well, that doesn't make any sense either. So and the kicker to that is the the 
nonprofits that come in my door, they're like, yeah, you know, we'd really like to just get rid of Delaware because it doesn't do anything for us. We're in, in California. Can we just wind up and dissolve that one and, and base our headquarters here? Well, the kicker to that is the IRS to allow your C3 designation to be with you have to keep in your, your home, your first state of domicile. So if you wind up and dissolve that Delaware corporation that you initially used and got exemption for, you have to reapply again for C3 status in California as a new entity. It's it's ridiculous. It's something that the IRS and Treasury has had on their like to-do list forever, but you can't repatriate a C3 designation. So for those people listening to us, the only people who should incorporate as a 501c3 in Delaware is if they live and work in Delaware. <laughs> yes, yes. That is the biggest myth. And we get it all over. I mean, it's not just Delaware, but Delaware, you know, if you're incorporating, you incorporate in Delaware. And that's just a knee-jerk reaction. And it's for, for most businesses, it's not necessarily true. And it's absolutely not true for nonprofits. Wow, that's a good one. I like that. You know what I'd really like to do? May is you've been such a great guest and I've really enjoyed the conversation. I would love to call you again when we do our next season in the fall and have some new questions for you. I'd be happy for, to do that. Maybe I'll have a new good juicy myth for you. Okay, great. <laughs> great. Well, I think, you know, the things that we covered today are things that I hear a lot. So I think we've really done a great service to the the sector by getting some of these things out there. And if people want to find you, May, they can find you at forpurposelaw.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Join us at the Summer School for Nonprofits for one amazing week every August. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.